0: Well, hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Clinical Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm so excited that you're here again this week to hang out with me. I get so much great feedback from all of you listening about just the value and the help that this is for you. And I really do love doing these podcasts and connecting with you. At the time of this recording, I'm actually... um, we're getting ready to go out of town for Labor Day weekend. So you will hear this um, shortly after that. But uh, my man and I, we are going to take our boat out and go tour around the south part of Puget Sound down towards Tacoma and Olympia. And we're going to go spend the weekend out and around. It's a little cloudy right now. So our departure is delayed a bit. We got to wait for the fog and the clouds to lift, but we're going to take off and have a great weekend. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend as well. So to our topic for today, I wanted to talk to you, um, give you a little bit of clinical insight because they do still get lots of requests for that. Um, I wanted to give you some information about how to choose the right, the, the kind of my top favorite blood markers or lab markers that I'm looking at when I look at a blood test to see just at a quick glance. What's kind of happening with the patient? Because sometimes I'm a, it's on the fly. You know, I'm sitting with a patient and they got, oh, well, I have my blood labs or they send them in at the last minute, which, you know, they do. Sometimes they send them in like right before we're going to meet. And I think, oh, my gosh, I only have like three minutes to look at this before the appointment. So I wanted to give you just kind of go over and I know that the title of the podcast says 10 key markers, but there's no way like, I'm sorry, this is not going to be 10. I've got more than that for you, but these are the ones that I look at quickly. So I'll give you just a super brief explanation of each one of them, why I think they're important, why I choose them. And then maybe this will be helpful for you as well. So, you know, having the ability to quickly evaluate your labs um, in practice is just super, super important. And I know this because we actually just finished the enrollment for the fall class of business coaching collaborative. So for those of you listening that are Um, inside BCC for this particular, for this cohort, this in the fall of 2022. Welcome, welcome. So excited that you're going to join us. If you haven't, and you didn't know about it, you should, you can hop on the wait list for next year's um, cohort to open back up and just go to RhondaNelson.com forward slash BCC little aside note there. Anyway, so with the, many of these practitioners are looking for ways, well they're all in BCC and they're looking for ways to grow the practice and build the foundations and cre- have the clinical skills to be able to to talk to patients and communicate connect with them to be able to offer more functional based medicine. And one of the ways that we do that and it's easy is with blood labs. By by having a basic understanding of blood labs. And lots of practitioners are nervous about it. Like I hear this all the time like oh, I I think I just need to be super good at it. No, you don't. You've got resources that you can go to. I have a full training manual. I will link to it in the show notes. You can just go to the shop, my shop page, rondanelson.com forward slash shop. You'll see it there. It's a functional blood chemistry training manual that'll go through over 70 markers. And I'll teach you about each one of them inside that manual but for today, we don't have time to do that. I just taught that seminar. So I want to give you the key ones. So if you are an expert at blood chemistry, reading those labs, or you're just getting started, or you're just not sure, I'm going to give you the ones that I am the most passionate about and the ones that I like to look at. So are you ready? All right, here we go. Number one, of course, is going to be glucose. We need to be looking at what their blood sugar is. So the range that we kind of want to shoot for, in my opinion, is around 85 to 90. If it starts climbing up over 90, it's not that they're diabetic or anything like that. Remember when we talk about functional ranges, we're talking about optimal. And optimal only means that that is where they need to be, or that's what the research shows that the healthy population lives there. Now, just because they're outside of optimal does not mean in this case that someone has type two diabetes or insulin resistance. No, no, no. It's just an indicator that points you like, huh, if they come in with a glucose of 98 you, and it's fasting and you think, oh, that's a little high. I wonder what's going on. Does not mean that they have anything wrong necessarily yet. But if it goes unchecked, it could mean that maybe three, five years down the road, there could be a problem. So how about we start doing some dietary, you know, cleanup, and maybe you use some herbs or other nutrients or foods, whatever you're going to use to turn that around and start to enable and support that glucose handling system, whatever that is, whether it's stress handling, you know, mechanism, because you want to support the glucocorticoids in the adrenal glands or liver or pancreas or diet, whatever it is. So glucose is a very, very important one. So I like to see it in like optimal in a perfect world. I like to see it 85, maybe up to 90. But once it starts getting higher or lower than that, then I'm gonna start doing a little bit of a digging. Now, along with glucose always comes hemoglobin A1c. So HA1c, we wanna have that between 5.0 and 5.5. Some people say it can be as low as 4.5, I kind of think probably the lower the better. It just means that the less sticky those blood those red blood cells are, so they're they're moving. The glucose saturation in the bloodstream is not as dense, and so when you you want that lower um, hemoglobin A1C number, so those two kind of go together. The next one that I like to talk about and look at is total protein. I've always been a fan of looking at total protein because what you'll see is when total protein starts to drop low, you will very rarely see it below the lab range. But I like to see it anywhere from uh, six and a half to seven and a half, like 6.5 to 7.5, somewhere in that range. For me, that's like the sweet spot. But if it's below that, Or above that, you're gonna need to do some additional investigation. And one of the things that I like to quickly, like this is a kind of a quick for me, if I see blood total protein changing and going low, let's say it comes in at a 6.2 maybe, Again, we're not talking anything critical happening, but it does raise a little bit of an alarm for me. And I think, huh, I wonder if it's possible that the patient may not be A, eating enough protein, complete protein in their diet, or B, maybe they're not utilizing that protein. Maybe it's not breaking down well in the stomach and it can be an indication that I need to go start supporting that upper digestion. So I think about that with total protein. So I associate that with some digestion, possible digestion or dietary um, insufficiency. Could be absorption as well, but that's where I like to think about. If total protein starts to drop, that and what that's what's most common you'll see. Remember, not outside lab range, just outside that optimal range. And that sometimes can be the thing that you just go, oh, uh, maybe we need to give a little bit of upper digestive support. All right, the next one is calcium and phosphorus. Now, those are two markers, and then together we also want to look at the calcium-phosphorus ratio. It's very rare that a patient's going to bring you in a test from their primary medical provider or through their insurance, that's gonna have phosphorus on it. But phosphorus is so important as it has to do with calcium. So calcium, we like that optimal range between nine and a half and 10, like 9.4, 9.5, right in there between nine and 10. Now the body regulates calcium very tightly. So it's not too, too often that you'll see calcium outside the lab range, but sometimes it'll drop down below that 9.5. I see it quite often still within lab ranges, so there's no, quote, disease process. But I think, huh, I wonder why that might be. Could it be that there's poor uh, stomach acid, so we're not extracting the minerals from the food that we're eating? Or maybe they're not getting the right kinds of foods in their diet. Or maybe we have an imbalance with phosphorus, because in the blood, calcium and phosphorus go together. Now, that Phosphorus, we want between three and three and a half and four. And then the calcium phosphorus ratio, the best is between 2.3 and 2.7. So you really want to shoot for that 2.5 mark. We want four parts of calcium to one part phosphorus in the blood. I know I'm dropping a lot of numbers on you, aren't I? Well, I guess if you're driving or walking and you don't have a notepad, you may have to come back and listen to this one again. Sorry, (laughs) but I'm going to get through these. So calcium, phosphorus, that's very important. Those are two markers that I like to look at. So when I order uh, labs, I'm going to be ordering that and including phosphorus because I do think it's so important. You'll have to manually calculate the calcium-phosphorus ratio. So it's just calcium divided by phosphorus, and that'll give you that ratio. All right, the next marker I always like to look at, this one's an easy one, and that is alkphos or alkaline phosphatase. That particular marker gives you information about zinc status, among other things, but it's a quick glance. I can see exactly what's happening. Most of the time, you're going to see it low. It can be low with GI issues. There are several other reasons that it can be low. Sometimes if you start using zinc, like you start to do some supplemental zinc with a low alkphos, and if that doesn't turn it around, then look to the gut you're going to want to look to the gut and even the liver. So alk is one of the ones I like to look at and it generally you're going to want to keep that between now oh, 85 and 110 maybe 115 somewhere in there. Now uric acid is another marker that I love looking at. Really love this one because when it starts to go high, the risk of disease and multiple, multiple diseases goes way up. I mean, incrementally way up quickly. So risk for, we always associate UA or uric acid with gout, for instance. And every one point that it goes up, that increases, but it's also highly associated with the gut and a number of other uh, important and Possibly, you know, problematic diseases. So there's a great book by David Perlmutter that recently came out. It's called Drop Acid. I'm not a huge fan of the title. However, the implication is drop uric acid is what he's referring to. So if you don't have that book, I would highly recommend it. It's very, very good. Um, he doesn't give any kind of ranges per se in there, but he just talks about when ranges go up what can be the problem there's lots of research about this it's a very very good book so i would i would highly recommend that for uric acid if you want to learn a little bit more about that all right and next one that i like to look at is just everybody talks about liver enzymes being alt and ast and if you've been if you've ever taken my functional blood chemistry seminar or you've heard me talk about this before you know okay do not laugh but i'm going to give you my act my the way that i remember it and everybody remembers it so don't laugh or at least i can't hear you laughing because you're on the other side of the microphone but alt alt l for liver alt is the one that we really want to look at most because this is an enzyme that that is important for the liver so alt liver And that is, it's something that's produced kind of inside the liver. So when we have liver damage, hepatocytes are breaking down, ALT will go up. So if ALT is up over, I don't know, maybe 30-ish, you are going to want to investigate a little bit. Doesn't mean there's a big, huge problem. You don't have a fire, but if it's 35 or 40, yeah, you you might want to do some liver work, do some detoxification, provide very healing nutrients for the liver. Milk thistle can be super good for that. So you may want to just look around at that, but there's ALT, liver, right there. Okay, the next one, of course, we're going to be looking at the lipids, which is cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, and HDL. And without going into too much detail here, just know that um, all elevations of cholesterol should be investigated. I'm never real worried if it's around 200, 220 historically, um, and I talk about this in the um, functional blood chemistry manual or the training, but historically cholesterol levels have been going down, 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 but coincidentally, conveniently, maybe, wink, wink, that may have been associated with the onset or the inception of and availability of the statin drugs. So uh used to be that a 265, 285 cholesterol was perfectly normal, and now... Um, that's, you know, bad. So I'm not saying that you should ignore it at that level. It may be fine for your patient. But one of the clues that I like to look at, and we can see this on the labs, is that there should be a hundred point difference between cholesterol and LDL. So LDL is, this is the acronym, you're gonna laugh at this one too, LDL, leave the liver, means it takes the cholesterol away from the liver. It's leaving the liver and HDL is home to the liver, so home it takes it back. So you want to think about cholesterol and LDL. There should be about a hundred point spread if the liver is metabolizing and handling cholesterol and the LDL proteins appropriately. So I go into that more detail in the in the reference manual. But for right now. Just know there's a hundred point, you should have about a hundred point difference, but any elevation, just, just go look. Sometimes all it takes is a change in the diet and doing some liver work and that those elevated cholesterol levels and LDL levels will come right back into normal. Now for triglycerides, generally speaking, those should be about half of total cholesterol if the liver is metabolizing those fats correctly. And then you want HDL to be above 60. So we want it over 60- for both sexes, male and female. All right. Vitamin D is another one. You want to look at that. I have a little different opinion about vitamin D levels. I think the lab levels are way overstated. They're way too high. I think we need for the average person, we need them at about 35 to 50 roughly of U.S. Uh, units. All of these that I'm giving you are in U.S., Uh, but 35 to 50 is where I like to see it, but I say never give vitamin D do not encourage a patient to take vitamin D unless you've done a test. Most of the time, the patient's levels are too high. You will still get them come in low, but remember that the vitamin D, the, uh, that's being tested, the 25 hydroxy is the inactive form of D. If you really wanna know what's going on, then you're gonna to have to add on the 125-calcitriol to get the active hormone D, right? The active form of the D. So I don't know, I'm 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 not a big fan of the 25-hydroxy D because it's the inactive hormone. I, I think that it was a, a knee jerk and everybody got all on the bandwagon about vitamin D and I just don't think that we really should be giving it. And I don't think we begin to be giving it at the doses that we're giving it. I think we cause more problems than we, than we realize. So that's my two cents quickly about vitamin D. All right. Uh, Just a few more. So homocysteine is another one. And that for me, that's that you know, it's a, it's a cardiotoxin. It's basically a poor um, it's, it's in insufficient vitamin B. Basically, we don't have enough B vitamins in order to complete the methylation process. And so sometimes if you see homocysteine high, you just want to jump in there and give them a good vitamin B and that will resolve it. So just do your investigation, just check, but I always look at that marker. The other one I look at is CRP. So high sensitivity CRP, sometimes the lab will say cardiac CRP or CRP cardiac, same thing. But you want to look at that marker and know that that's a very nonspecific, very general marker for inflammation in the body somewhere. So something somewhere is inflamed. So I always say if there's no, if you don't have a sprained ankle or a broken bone or something where you can see a lot of inflammation, clearly it's on the inside. So is the inflammation, where is it? Is it in the gut? Is it in the brains? Is it in the arterial structure? Where is it? So we want to look for that inflammation. So if you see CRP up, you're going to want to do some anti-inflammatory work definitely clean up diet, pull out foods that you think the patient may be either sensitive to or ones that you already know uh, are in their diet that are not good for them. Maybe pro-inflammatory foods, too many um, omega-6s, omega-9s, et cetera, less not balanced that way. So you, you just have to go do your digging. And then a couple more on the CBC, there's a few markers that I always like to look at Um, CBC is pretty easy, but I love looking at neutrophils, lymphocytes and eosinophils. And I use the percentages, but I like to see neutrophils and lymphocytes pretty close together in the forties somewhere. And then I like to see eosinophils like, you know, maybe five or below three or below. If they get too high, then I know that there's some inflammation could be allergies, some kind of, something's happening in the surface tissue could be on the skin, either outside or inside, but it also, there's, there's several reasons that, that could be, it could be irritation just from like intestinal parasites or some kind of, and I use parasite, I use that word very loosely. Do not say that. I think that every eosinophil elevation is a parasite. I don't think that, but you know, some, some, something going on in the gut could be a bacterial imbalance that could cause that, but it's just inflammation. So you have to figure out what's driving that. If that eosinophil is up and then, Lastly, of course, we couldn't talk about this without talking about the thyroid. And uh, TSH is the last marker I look at. Although sadly, it's the marker that everybody and even the patients think, oh, my thyroid's in trouble because my TSH is high. Well, your TSH isn't even a thyroid hormone. It doesn't really have anything to do with the thyroid other than it signals the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone T4. But it's a pituitary hormone. So, how about we look at what the thyroid is doing? And I like to look at total T4 and total T3. Those are my two go to markers because what that's going to tell me is how well is the thyroid A producing thyroxine or T4? And then B, how well is it converting it into T3, triiodothyronine, the active form of the hormone? And that conversion happens in the gut, in the liver and in the peripheral tissues, so mostly in the liver. So I really want to see what the heck's happening with T4 and T3. And then, of course, you'd want to look at antibodies as well, because uh, thyroid uh, antibody or autoimmune disease is pretty rampant. Now, there is a certain subset of the population, as we wrap up here, that will have um, antibodies for thyroid, but they will not have autoimmune. So it can be a bit tricky. So I say, if you think, if they, if they look, if they appear like they're autoimmune, remember you want to always look at the person. I guess that's a, that's a great way to wrap this conversation up. You want to treat the person. Don't treat the test, please treat the person, not the test. Don't think, oh my gosh, you have a raging problem over here. If they look fine, but if you've got enough clues from your diagnostic evaluation, your physical evaluation, maybe your lab tests, your if you've got enough clues and the patient's symptoms and the way that you're assessing what's happening with them points towards an autoimmune type condition, great, then go chase that down. But just be careful that you don't pigeonhole the patient. In other words, put them in a box, give them a diagnosis and say, oh, you have X. Because in this case, with thyroid autoimmune Hashimoto's, there's a certain subset of the population that do have positive antibodies that could be transitory. And they may come and then they may go. So just be careful. You just want to watch, look at the patient, make sure that the patient, that the the symptoms match the tests, right? We don't want to be throwing the the baby out with the bathwater, but I also don't want to put the patient in a box and give them a label if that label does not fit. So my friend, I hope this is helpful for you. I do have a blog on how to grow your practice using blood labs. I have that linked in the show notes, as well as I'll link up the notes or the link for the manual, the blood chemistry manual, if you'd like, there's a quick start guide that goes with that as well, that really helps you implement and quickly assess those blood tests so that it, it saves you a lot of time. Let me just put it that way. I use it. I wrote it and I use it all the time. So there you go. I hope this is helpful for you. I do like to throw in some clinical stuff every now and again, because in order to be a good entrepreneur and a good business owner you also have to be a good clinician kind of goes part and parcel with the whole thing right so thank you so much for hanging out for with me and again if you love the podcast it means so much to me if you'll just take a moment and you'll just rate review and then be sure you subscribe meaning that every time a new episode comes out you'll get a little ding ding on your phone that'll let you know that we've got another one coming out so i've got some guests coming up in the weeks ahead And I think you're going to enjoy those. And uh, anyway, I guess that's it for me this week. I hope this has been beneficial to you. Thank you for being part of my world and my community. I really do love being here every single week and serving you and helping you become an amazing clinical entrepreneur. All right, friends, take care. I'll see you next week.